0: Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 as we continue to work through this book. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. Before we go to God's Word, let's go to Him again in prayer. Let's pray. lord jesus as we come to your word we are thankful that we are able to see pictures of your word that not only do we read about the washing of regeneration that takes place in our hearts and cleansing us from sin that takes place the spirit's actual work but we can see a picture of it with baptism we not only read and understand the, the work that you did for us on the cross, your sacrifice for us, but we see a picture of it in your supper. So Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would make it that plain for us. We are people who struggle with plain things. And so many times when we come to your word, it's so much less than plain. Not because of you, but because of our lack of understanding, and even because of our desire to make this word our own. So Lord, we pray that you would strike down our idols, and that you would change us according to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to Ephesians chapter 2, the last part of chapter 2, we're dealing with a theme concerning unity in the church and it made me think of over the last 200 or so years in the American church that we have become increasingly more and more divided and there are some divides I think that are good and necessary when it comes to particular doctrines like our views on God and his word and the redemptive work of Jesus yet in the century or so a kind of in the last century or so kind of independent christianity has risen up rather than seeing god's relationship with the covenant community as a whole we instead think more about his individual relationship with us our our individual relationship with christ personal relationship with christ as you've heard it said so many times The church is followed with this sort of thinking as well, with worship services and sermons tailored more toward pleasing the individual rather than instruction for the church as a whole. Our preferences are the same, with people dividing because they want to go someplace that meets their needs rather than seeking to meet the needs of others. And on the other side of this, we have this kind of old guard that in response to this, rather than seeking to understand a changing culture, they gather these old, odd things around them, like, quote unquote, the good old days. Wishing the way things used to be were still a thing. Dreaming about a time that really doesn't even exist. Because the ideal is never true. The result in this country has been a dwindling church that is divided. This was similar in Paul's day as well as he dealt with Jewish Christians considering themselves the true people of God, having the true traditions of God. And then the Gentiles who were new to the game, not only to these Jewish traditions, which for many of them they'd never even heard of them. We take that for granted that we have these traditions in front of us all the time. But for a lot of these Gentile Christians, they didn't even know where Jerusalem was, much less some of these traditions. And instead they brought in their own cultural distinctives to the fold. Two groups, both hanging on to things that aren't Jesus. Consider that in the last, or in the previous 30 to 50 years in the context of Ephesians, the Jews had every Old Testament prophecy come true in the coming of Jesus and that Jesus himself had been killed and risen from the dead and also the apostles who whom Jesus charged to start the church had also been instructed to open the gates, so to speak, to the Gentiles, that the whole world might be blessed through this seed of Abraham, again, seeing a promise come true in Christ. So the Jews were having to deal with quite a bit of change on their end as well. Paul addresses these controversies head on here in this passage and really in the continuum of this entire book, he instructs the church of these things that, that are used to separate them but no longer do because of what Christ has done. He talked about how there's no longer a divide between Jew and Gentile, and this should change the way that we live. And we are instructed to do this today as Gentile believers, but with similar problems in the American church as well. So as we look at this passage, we'll consider three main ideas united in Christ, at peace because of Christ, and then built together by Christ. And so let's look together at the text, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Ephesians 2, starting at verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision... Which is made in the flesh by, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at times separated by, from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. the Spirit. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So as we come to this passage, verse 11 calls us to consider the previous section of the letter. We we see this word, therefore, and it's not only causing or calling us to look at the previous 10 verses, but really all of chapter 1 as well. Everything that we've talked about so far has nothing to do ...at all with human influence, country of origin, social status, anything. It has to do with God's direct intervening on a people dead in their sins and their trespasses. We haven't read so far that only Jews are that or only Gentiles are that. We have read that all people are that outside of Christ. This is a condition that is universal. Yet while spiritually dead, I think this is important for us to understand... While spiritually dead, they are very much physically alive before Christ in a world with social and cultural divisions. So while all people must be born again in order to be saved, when they are born again, they are each born again into particular social context. And as a new believer, they must use the truth of God's redemptive plan to inform their social context. Their social context does not inform God's word, but it's the opposite. I think that's important for us as well. We've seen that over and over as we've been going through this. And so when we read, therefore, at the beginning of verse 11, we are being called upon to bring that redemptive plan that we've read in chapter 1 and up so far to this point in chapter 2, to bring all of that to bear on what the the apostle is about to say to us today. This is true in Paul's day, of course, and it's true in our own. That brings us to the first point, united in Christ. Verse 11, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. Again, therefore, because I have said these things concerning your previous estate, being dead in trespasses, and your current estate being alive in Christ Jesus, raised to walk in good works. Therefore, all of these things being true. Remember that you were once called, you Gentiles, were once called the uncircumcision. So they were not only dead in their trespasses, but they were not even part of God's people, quote unquote, God's people in the old covenant. This term, the uncircumcision, it probably has it in quotes in your english bible this is because this is how the jewish people referred to the gentiles and it was used as a pejorative kind of term it wasn't used as a nice thing to call people the uncircumcision circumcision was a sign of the covenant with god we had one we've had two signs of the covenant with god today in our service and so understand that this circumcision that was given to the jewish people under the old covenant was that sort of sign it was something that literally marked the men of the nation Reminded them and future generations of this relationship that they had with God in particular. And the Gentiles couldn't possibly share in this. It was a very personal sign. It represented that sin came by natural birth and it must be cut off. The cutting off of the foreskin and circumcision represented the cutting off of sin, not earning favor with God by itself, but pointing forward to the one who would do that once and for all. And this is said against these people that are called the circumcision. And particularly, Paul says, made with hands. Jewish people took great pride in being called the circumcision. It was widely known in the ancient world that these were the people who were circumcised. And this is a circumcision that Paul makes sure to tell us this is a circumcision Made with hands. It's used to separate that from God's doing. Circumcision, again, is a sign of what God is doing in His people already. And so this particular circumcision that Paul's talking about is the actual act of it. It is a circumcision made with hands, but it is something that should have pointed forward to a spiritual reality. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 4. If you want, you can turn with me there, or just listen, Jeremiah 4. This passage very plainly spells that out. There are several places in the scriptures that do this, but I like this one in particular. Jeremiah 4 verses 1 through 4. Of this idea of the physical circumcision being and pointing forward to a spiritual reality, just like our physical baptism is pointing forward to a spiritual reality. Jeremiah 4 verses 1 through 4. If you owe Israel, declares the Lord, if you return O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return, or you should return, if you remove your detestable things from my presence, and do not waver. And if you swear, as the Lord lives, in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns circumcise yourselves to the Lord remove the foreskin of your hearts o men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds so the lord is calling them and their circumcision these men of Judah to circumcise their hearts meaning this is a should be a heart change this thing that is taking place physically only points forward to something that should have taken place spiritually in your life. This act doesn't earn any kind of favor before God. It can't because we are in sin unable to do that. We've already read that in the preceding two chapters. It only points forward to something that is ultimately done by Jesus because man, both Jew and Gentile, or incapable of doing this for themselves, removing sin from their life, and living in righteousness. They were completely unable to do this, and they needed someone to do it for them. And that is what's being pointed forward here. And that that brings us to verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God, in the world. Separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth. Not only in, they were without Christ, not only in the sense that they lacked a savior, but nationally they could not look in from the outside because they weren't Jewish. They didn't have these things that made them distinctly Jewish. They didn't have these covenants and these promises and all these things. As Gentiles, they were literally called strangers. To the covenants of promise they had no knowledge of the great history of israel and the covenants that that were made with the fathers of noah and abraham and isaac and jacob and moses and david all these great heroes of the faith didn't belong to them gentiles had no way to enter into this relationship outside of a mediator because they couldn't just change their past they couldn't change the fact that they were roman right they had this history full of pagan gods and the worship of pagan gods. Of course, them, this made them very similar to Israel. But outside of Christ, they had no hope. Without God in the world is what the text tells us. They, they can know about God through his general revelation. But they can't truly know God because they don't have the words of God. And so as we read through this, Paul is building up this case that without Christ, Gentiles, you more than anybody can't even possibly have heard about these things. And when we get to verse 13, that is why we see this big shift. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now. This is just like when we read in verse 4 up there in verse 4. Where we redeem our trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Christ, and so we have that same kind of change going on—that change in condition. You who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ, not by the blood of men. This isn't circumcision at all that redeems us, not by being an, being born in Israel. Not by being any sort of nationality, but we are brought near. We are literally brought into the fold. And now we have this unity that all believers share. That we as Gentiles, that those in in Israel, we have all been brought near, brought together in Christ. And so for us, who don't really understand this Gentile Jewish context at all, because we're all Gentiles here in the truest sense of the word... How do we live? What is, how does this inform us? I think it speaks to the situation in our church today, specifically here in America, in our church in America. We no longer, of course, have this sort of distinction, but we do have to deal with the fact there are literally hundreds of denominations, all of which have some variation of truth that we draw from the scriptures. And so how do we parse through this sort of division? Some people have even gone so far as to say that obviously denominations are bad things, and they'll, they'll say that from within their own denomination, which is kind of a counterpoint in and of itself. Well, I think for us, we have to stick to the very plain things of Scripture, right? The triune nature of God, the inerrancy of Scripture, the nature of and work of jesus christ the gospel by grace alone through faith alone the personal work of the holy spirit in the lives of believers all of these things that are really non-negotiables as we see in our bible we don't have these things are so so part of the bible that to deny them is to deny god's word altogether these are things that we readily divide over because these are truths that are plain in scripture and so if someone comes to me and says God's word isn't truly inerrant, then we don't stand together in the faith. And I think that's pretty plain. However, there are a lot of things that though we should have convictions on, we should have definite convictions on. We we have sacraments, for instance. We have convictions on those. We've seen both we'll see both of those today. Though we have strong convictions on our sacraments, we shouldn't divide over them. I would disagree with some of my closest friends concerning some of the doctrines that I hold to. That we are still able to walk hand in hand in ministry together. We both seek to make Jesus known in the world and we do so by walking together. That we don't let these points of doctrine divide us ultimately. Because Jesus has, is the one who has joined us. Jesus' death and resurrection unified his people as one church. Now, when you hear the word one church, which we're going to see this later in the text, that doesn't mean that denominations are bad. In fact, I think they're good and even necessary at some points. But that doesn't mean we divide. We're not dividing with this church across the street, even though we're meeting in two separate buildings. If we were to say to them, let's meet together this Sunday, that would be a really long meeting. And we, at the end of that meeting, we would say, we can't meet together this Sunday. But we pray for them all the time. We are desperate to see that church grow, and we want to see the gospel proclaimed from that pulpit. And we say the same for all the churches in town. We're all on the same team. We are not divided. In fact, we should work all the more diligently in order to be unified here on earth because we are already unified in Christ. But even inside our denominational boundaries, we as ARP Christians, for instance, there are differences. We have some who are much more traditional. I'll just sum it up by saying that. There are others that have different expressions of their faith. Not extra biblical differences, meaning that we have these divisions that are in Scripture, but just differences that fall into what we would call those grey areas of worship or personal living. We have to be careful here, because any time we make a non essential into a true dividing line of the Christian faith, we are in danger of making an idol. We are in danger of making a false gospel. And as we said this morning, as we learned from 1 Samuel 8, what do those false gods do every time? They can't unify. They only divide. They only punish. They only take. This is as bad in Reformed churches as it is in any other, lest we think that we're better somehow, because we're not. In fact, I think sometimes just from the inside it seems almost worse. When the thing that reconciles me to God becomes different Than the righteousness of Christ. We are seeking peace in something else. That can only cause division. That brings us to the peace of Christ. Second point. Verse 14. Let's look together at that again. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh. The dividing wall of hostility. He himself. Jesus Christ is our peace. He has broken down. The dividing wall. In him, we have reconciliation. There's no need for human means of reconciliation because this has happened on the ultimate level. God the Son has joined us together. So in him, we are in an inseparable union. Even if we wanted to be separate, we're not. Christ is the point that we agree on. Not some other thing. We don't gather together because we have a common enemy. And I think this is very important for us to understand. Particularly as the churches in this country in particular is seeing the enemy circle around us. We don't gather together because we have a common enemy. We gather together because we have a common savior. Jesus has vanquished our enemy. Has left our enemy powerless. We gather around the cross of Christ together as one covenant people. Our ultimate enemies, sin and death, have once and for all been defeated. Sin has been nailed to the cross. Death has been defeated because we worship a risen Savior. Satan is merely a creature at the discretion of his creator and no power over those who belong to the Lord. Jesus is our peace. And so searching for some other thing that we place power in and asking that thing to give us peace is just raising up a false god to do it. That brings us to verse 15 and 16. How has he broke down the dividing wall of hostility? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself. One new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, Jesus once for all abolished those Jewish laws concerning sacrifices and other ceremonial cleanliness laws because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. In him we find cleanness. We don't find it anywhere else. We have been cleansed by the blood of Christ. We no longer need some sort of ritual by which we worship in order to make us clean. We have the sacrament that shows that, but it literally points to the work that's already been done. It doesn't do that. It couldn't do that. Gentiles, then, are equally clean with Jews. There's, there's, the law is no longer separating God's people from anyone or anything else. God's people are now anyone who has found peace in Christ. Anyone who has called upon the name of Jesus Christ are called his people. Jesus was the, a Jewish man who not only settled our sin, but he lived without sin. He was the one who didn't need a sacrifice, but he became the sacrifice and if anyone was truly a Jew in the ceremonial sense it was Jesus of course who was the only real true Jewish person and it's through him that Jews and Gentiles have peace with one another in Christ it's in the cross that we find reconciliation because in the cross every bit of hostility was destroyed in the resurrection we are risen with him and risen to a new life and this new life Which we have in Christ is a life of peace. And so we aren't to take these small things that would divide us and let them divide us when we have been joined together in Christ. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. He preached peace to those who were far off and near. Because peace has nothing to do with which nation that you are from, but only through Jesus. It's through Jesus that we have access to the spirit being called the spirit of peace and truth, being called the counselor and comforter for, for everyone in Christ has this same spirit in the same measure. You hear me say this all the time, but we don't have a little bit of spirit and I need to somehow drum up the rest of it. In order to really come to know Jesus, I have to, like, be in the Spirit or receive more of the Spirit or somehow show that I have more of the Spirit. I have all of the Spirit because the Spirit's work in me, not because I've done something, not because I've prayed in a certain way or acted in a certain way or said certain things. None of those. It's through Christ alone. We have access to the Father. Through Jesus, equal access, we may literally approach the throne of God and boldly pray to Him without ceasing and pray expectantly that He is hearing our prayers and that He plans to answer them according to His will. These are a few verses that point that the dividing line of Christ is some man-made distinction that is not real. And again, I understand that the original context here is between Jews and gentiles but the divide that we have in our churches isn't any different but it also and many times it seems just as real we divide over things that may be important but aren't so important that they're able to rebuild the walls that jesus has broken down imagine imagine saying that when we read here that jesus has broken down the walls of hostility that i'm going to say well jesus we probably should rebuild this one here in the church when we squabble over little things we're in danger of attempting to rewrite the gospel message in terms of peace that we broker ourselves but in him we are one people regardless of denomination regardless of how long we've been in christ we try to make that distinction as well i've been a christian for 20 years so So I have this certain understanding that you don't. Imagine saying that because I've just lived longer that I have more Jesus than you do. In order to survive in a world that is inherently against him and against his people, we must be together. Jesus knew this when he was leaving in John 17. He prayed to the Father that they may be one as we are one. Speaking to the Father. So imagine that Jesus' prayer for the church is that his people, that we, His people, would be together one, just as the Father and the Son are one. That kind of union was bought with His sacrifice. And so any attempt to break that union doesn't change his work. It only changes us. and it's not good. We saw this with the bitterness of the Jews against Christians in the first century and the persecution that took place. We see that any time we divide over little things as a church. For the church to continue to thrive, we must remain as one. This doesn't mean that we're worshiping all in the same building. And I think a lot of times that's what people want to see, and that's not necessary. But it does mean that we all have one accord concerning the mission of Christ and what is at stake that brings me to the last point, built together by Christ. Let's look at the last few verses, 18 through 21. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure... Being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Because of the work of Christ, we are no longer aliens. When we read this, we're no longer aliens, of course, with Jesus, but we're no longer aliens with one another either. We are fellow citizens, members of the household of God, built on the prophets and the apostles. In Jesus, the old and new are one. No longer strangers, but citizens. The saints of the New Testament are joined with the members of the household of God in the Old Testament. The apostles of the new join the prophets of the old. And we are all together in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is joining the old and new into one family for his glory that the world might be blessed. Remember when Abraham was given the promise way back in Genesis 12. What did he, what did God tell Abraham he was going to do through his seed? Bless the whole world. And that is the task that we've been given as his one church, as his people, with Jesus being the cornerstone. That which founds the rest of the structure on itself. That which starts as a starting point to the whole structure. His church is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. We are joined together in him. We are growing together into a holy temple that worships the Lord, being built together as a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit does his work through the church, not just one particular branch of it, but he works through the whole church. Why is this important? we look around us, we see all this apparent division, and you've heard this, I'm sure, it may be easy as Christians to look at all the division in the church to see that we're all in different buildings this morning and think, well, I've had enough of this, and you've probably heard someone say this. We might just say, well, the church is so divided, I don't need to go to church. We might want to go alone, right? We may want to just worship God by ourselves, that's not the point that's being made here. There's no such thing as a church that is alone. There's no such thing that, as a Christian that isn't part of a covenant community. Christians do not purposefully shy away from other believers. They desire to be around them because we have things in common that the world doesn't have. We are built upon the foundation of God's Word with Christ as the cornerstone and we are held together as his people in Christ. And so imagine a brick of that building saying, I still am going, I'm still going to be a part of the building, but I'm going to go way over here and be a part of the building. It's not how it works. We are joined together in Christ. We cannot separate that thing that has been joined together in Christ And Jesus is gathering all those who are his, joining them together under this peace that he has made so that we may glorify God together in him. We no longer have this Jew-Gentile distinction, but we love to make other distinctions. And those distinctions really all come from the place of me thinking, I'm better than you. To be sure, again, we should we should divide on matters important to the faith. But when it comes to things that are in the Bible, or with the things that the Bible doesn't make into big deals, we shouldn't make them a big deal either. Rather than dividing, we should be building one another up. Because this house that God has built really requires each brick mutually relying on Christ as the cornerstone in order to work. Jesus goes on this theme in John 17. Turn with me to John 17. We're only going to read a small portion of it today. I encourage you, if you're seeking to understand the unity that we have in Christ with all believers, read John 17. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father on behalf of the people of God. And over and over, he prays that we would be one. I'm going to look at verses 20 through 26. And again, this is Jesus' prayer for the church both then and now. This is our Lord praying to the Father. He says, I do not ask for these only, talking about those disciples who were with Him, for these only, but for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they may also be in Us, so that... Why do we want to be together? So that the world may believe in you. They may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. And love them even as you love me. Father I desire that they also. Whom you have given me. May be with me where I am. To see my glory. That you have given me. Because you have loved me. Before the foundation of the world. There's some familiar language for us. Oh righteous father. Even though the world does not know you. I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is Jesus' prayer for the church. And notice what he prays, prays over and over again. Why does he pray that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one? Why does he pray this? So that the world will know. So that they will know and they will glorify God. And that's a call to you if you don't know Jesus this morning. He died so that his children could have salvation from the wrath of God because of their sin. He nailed that sin to the cross and paid the debt that we could not pay. So that we could have something that we do not deserve. Eternal life with Him. If that's you this morning, if you do not know Jesus, call upon the Lord and be saved. Believers in Jesus Christ, we are one because of the work of Jesus. Whether or not we want to be, we are one. So let us live in such a way as a united people under God so that the world will know Him and call upon the name of Jesus and be saved. Let's go to Him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we read your prayer for the church, we are humbled by it that you want unity for us that bad, and yet we will divide over silly, little, mindless, unimportant things. Lord, help us. Help us to be your united people. Help us to stand for one thing. That we would stand for the name of Jesus going out into all the earth. That people would hear and know that they would call upon your name and be saved. And that you would receive all the glory. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Please stand with me as we sing, as we sing our response to God's word.